When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this is um, a patient episode, um, but it's a patient episode from a physician. And um, it's a patient episode from a physician uh, whom I've come to know recently and have been moved and immensely impressed by her journey. Um, I have the distinct honor and pleasure of having with us uh, Dr. Aline Gregosian. Um, Aline, if, I apologize if I've if I've mispronounced this name and you can correct me. Um, Aline is a, a critical care fellow at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And um, she uh, is also an orthotopic heart transplant recipient. Uh, Aline, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. Uh, I know um, a lot of our listeners uh, are keen to tune in and listen to you. So thanks again for doing this for us. Thank you for having me. Um... They, it, I love doing these, so thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. So, Aline, um, why don't you uh, tell our listeners uh, about your journey um, as a heart transplant recipient, uh, you know, how you received the diagnosis that you had uh, a terminal heart condition and that merited um, workup for a heart transplant and, and what has been your journey? Uh, you know, there's... Uh, a tremendous insight in your journey as a patient because you are one of us. You are a physician who, you know, provides care to patients. So, you know, can't wait uh, for you to for you to start uh, talking about this. Right. Um, so I do have kind of a unique perspective. Um, I trained in emergency medicine. So a couple of years ago in at the end of 2018, I was in the at the end of, or like at the, in the middle of my third year of training because emergency medicine is three years of training and um i knew that i wanted to do critical care and i had actually just matched into a critical care fellowship so um just as basically around the time when you know we had matched into fellowship we're getting ready to finish our residency we're all doing really well and you know it's it's the prime time of of residency for for every physician who knows it's the senior year of residency. Um, and, and overall my health was going really, everything was going really well, my health wise, career wise, socially. I tell people academically, I had just been published in like, you know, I, I had just done a few case reports and, and publications. Um, I just submitted something for resuscitation, which is like a huge deal. And, um, in fact, I remember thinking that my life was going too well, which, which is really interesting. Like looking back, uh, and I was 30 years old at the time. Um, so this was the end of 2018. The only thing that was wrong 
was that I had a, a persistent cough that wasn't going away. Um, as an ER doctor, you know, we, we see this all the time. People could have persistent coughs after upper respiratory infections, and they're usually fine, especially if you're 30 years old and overall healthy. Um, but, and I like to tell people that I had the cough and, and I didn't really have any other symptoms that I remember at the time. Like looking back, I was also very tired, but I didn't think that was anything because I was a resident. Um, I was still working. I was still doing the normal things that a 30 year old would do. My exercise capacity was pretty much the same. Like I was still walking to work. I wasn't exercising as much at the gym, but that's because I was doing like these night shifts. So I don't remember like if I wasn't going to the gym as often because I was constantly on nights or if I wasn't going as much because I was like, because of a cough or shortness of breath, whatever the matter was, um, uh, this, this good cough ended up turning into shortness of breath, which is then basically my, my condition got worse. And, um, long story short, I ended up in the ER and, um, in the same ER that I work at, but instead of going in as a doctor, I went in as a patient and they had done this chest x-ray, which looked really bad, but, um, you know, the, the chest x-ray of a heart failure patient kind of sometimes looks, you know, if you, if you look volume overloaded, sometimes it looks like a, a pneumonia. So we were really unsure of what was going on. And, um, for somebody who was 30 years old and overall healthy, we were, you know, we weren't thinking heart failure at the time, but at the same time, I looked too sick to be going home with like just medications for pneumonia. So, um, my attending knew that I had to get admitted for a workup. Um, we had given some antibiotics and, and, or they had given some antibiotics and we knew we were going to start this workup, maybe get an echo in the morning and stuff like that. But again, we were really not sure exactly where things were going. Um, I, I kind of knew that I didn't think, again, nobody thought heart failure. So I, I went, we went to the, I went to the floor, um, as, as just like the inpatient floor as just a regular patient, uh, very reluctantly, by the way. So I wanted to sign out against medical advice. I had a shift the next day. I did not want to stay. I, I emailed my program director. I told him that I was in the ER and I was going to try my best to leave by the morning and I was probably fine. Um, but that night I actually, um, I became pulseless. I don't remember much of it. I remember I was on the floors and um, my heart rate, which had persistently been in like the 140s, which is a big sign of something, you know, sinus tack in the 140s. Um, I was breathing in the 40s. I didn't look right. And, and that's a big sign that something is brewing. Um Suddenly, I remember looking up at my monitor and I felt very nauseous. And the last number that I looked at was my heart rate. And it was like 30 and like 29, 28. And that's when I knew that something was awfully wrong. Um, so at that time, I ended up getting very nauseous, lightheaded, and they called a rapid response. Um, my boyfriend, who's an orthopedic surgeon, uh, was in there in the room with me and... Um, you know, he, he ended up getting the nurses. They called a rapid response. They had resuscitated me with some epi. I ended up being pulseless just for a few seconds. So it wasn't like I had to get CPR for 30 minutes or anything, but they had to intubate me and put me on pressors, which is basically medications that uh, make your heart restart or re pump again. Um, 
and I went to the ICU. Now, keep in mind, like, I don't know what's going on at this time. I'm, you know, they put me in a coma, a medically induced coma. And um, I, I was, you know, I don't know what happened in the next, like, day. So all I know is that I wake up and they told me that I have an ejection fraction of 5%. Normal ejection fraction is obviously, like, around 60% or higher. Um, and that's when... They asked me, do you have any history of heart failure? Like, where did this come from? Um, long story short, later on, we found out that it was a familial dilated cardiomyopathy. But um, until we figured that out, there was a lot of other things that had to happen. So I was told within four, you know, I, one day I was completely fine. And then within a couple of days, I was told I was in acute heart failure, acutely decompensated heart failure. And then I had to get transferred to... Penn, which was the nearest advanced heart failure center, um, with and, and and you know at that time it's so funny because I I was applying to critical care fellowships I I you know I'd actually matriculated into a critical care fellowship program I was an ER doctor and even then like I couldn't understand what was happening to me like I remember they're like you have to go to an advanced heart failure center and I was like what do you mean like what does that entail? And I remember the interventional cardiologist who was the one who happened to be on call the night that everything had happened to me. Um, he hadn't been, he wasn't the, he wasn't a heart failure doctor, but he was the one who was on call and had taken me to the cath lab. And he was like, well, you know, you might need an impello or a balloon pump or an LVAD or a heart transplant. And he was trying to explain these things to me. And I was like, no, there's no way. Like, I'm completely fine. What do you mean? But I had been very, very sick. Um, so I ended up going to, I ended up getting transferred to Penn and, and by the time I got there, you know, things were not looking good. So, you know, everything was deteriorating by the hour, I would say. So things were getting worse and worse and worse. And, um, and when I got to Penn, I was basically immediately listed for heart transplant, uh, and I got a heart transplant just, I was only on the list for a few days. I was on the list for less than two weeks. I was and and I got a heart transplant pretty much urgently. And within those two and a half weeks, my life went from normal to acute heart failure to having a heart transplant. Um, and that was it. And then, and then I got out of the hospital and I had to kind of make my life all over again into what it is now. And that's kind of my story. So it was crazy. And, and that was January of 2019. So it's been a little over two years now. Yeah, boy, Aline. So you know, for I just wanted to, I was I was listening intently, and um, uh, I want to reiterate a couple points that you made. Um, you know, and these are, you know, obviously stressing different aspects that that you've shared with us. You know, one is for for first off, I think getting a paper in resuscitation is is very respectable. So, you know, I, I just want to want to reiterate that. Um, then the, the second thing is that, you know, specifically, and this is for us, uh, you know, as cardiologists and as physicians at large, um, and uh, I, I do know that we have um, fellows in training and residents and medical students and even early career listening. I think heart failure in the young, you know, can be very well tolerated. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, the only sign may be sinus tachycardia, um, you know, which you sort of alluded to when you were uh, on on one of the uh, medicine floors and and you know all you could see was uh, a heart rate of 140s uh and now now granted you know if you have severe 
sepsis from pneumonia, I mean, you're, you're a critical care fellow, then, you know, obviously, you know, that is, uh, that, that could be one of the differentials, but, you know, knowing that your LV systolic function is severely decreased at 5%, which is just an, um, an egregiously low, low number for, for someone who's as young as you are. Um, then, you know, obviously cardiogenic shock is at the top of the differential, you, you know, acute decomposited heart failure with shock, um, and, you know, just to be quote unquote normal and, you know, have a transplant in the ensuing maybe two or three weeks is just, is just um, uh, I mean, it's just a lot to process, right? Like there's a lot to be processed and, and wrap your head around as to what's happening with someone, um, you know, who's as healthy as you are. And, you know, actually happens to be, like I said, at the beginning of the show, at the beginning of the podcast, you know, one of us. So, I, I, um, so, um, Tell us, uh, I'm going to get into the journey of you becoming a patient advocate and, and you becoming an advocate for organ donation, which is fantastic. I mean, you've basically followed your pain and are now, um, you know, becoming a beacon of, uh, of, you know, what you, what you should do. It's sort of like a life purpose, which I, I admire a lot and, and salute you for that. But before we get there, um, tell us about uh, some of the psychological aspects of, of recovery, you know, not physical recovery, which I'll get to, but psychological recovery. Was that big of a deal for you? Uh, right. How, how did how did that pan out for you? I actually think, so, you know, I always tell people there's two types of heart failure. There's acute heart failure and chronic heart failure. In my opinion, my heart failure was so acute that um, the physical recovery for me was in a way not that difficult. I was young, I was healthy right before, and the the, I, I, I kind of got back to everything pretty quickly. I was deconditioned in a different way and it wasn't easy necessarily, but you know, I was running within a month of transplant and, and I kind of, you know, I hadn't, I didn't have like multi-organ failure and, and it was, it was different for me in, in a way. So I think the psychological aspect was a lot more difficult for me than, than the physical aspect at times. Now, everybody has their own journey. Um, I stress that very often because people sometimes ask me like, how are you better? Like you look like a million bucks, like within a week of transplant. And I stress that I say acute and chronic heart failure are very different when you're, you know, if you're 60 years old and you've had heart failure for 30 years and you've been on the list for two years, it's going to be a way different mindset and a way different physical, you know, you're going to, you're going to be different physically than I was when I had my heart failure. However, we have our different struggles. So the psychological things that had happened to me were very different. Um, I think for one thing, like everything happened to me so quickly. I, I had time to process things, but not so much um, in the way that somebody would if they had chronic heart failure and had to kind of think if they wanted a transplant. So like the only thing that I could have done for my heart was to get the transplant. Um, I couldn't even think about whether or not I even wanted it. It was kind of like, hey, this is what we're going to do and we have to do it. And I was like, yeah, let's do it and let's get it over with. So um, so I had to process what was going on with me very quickly. Um, and in a way, I think for my personality and the way that I work, it was it was fine. Um, the way that I did it was I, I, I was able to journal often and I wrote a lot, which really, really helped me. Um, 
when you're on the transplant list for any organ transplant, um, you get a therapist and a psychiatrist who see you before the transplant process to kind of make sure that you're okay for the process. And I think that really helped me as well. Um, And then they also see you after the transplant. So I think that really helps you process what's going on with you. Um, I think being in the medical field for me personally also helped me. People ask, they say, you know, is it difficult knowing a lot of things like, you know, your prognosis and your mortality and all these different things that, you know, might be wrong with you at all times. And personally, for somebody like me who likes to be very practical and realistic, and I have this very like ICU and ER mindset of things, I don't mind it. And it helps me get through things. However, um, again, I tell people like, that's just, that just happens to be something that worked with me with my transplant. Um, so, so again, it was difficult, but I, I kind of made it work. And the way that I got through it was ultimately, I thought of it like this. I, I told myself, I said, you know, I could be sad and I could be upset and I could be angry and I could like blame my dad. Cause you know, my dad has dilated cardiomyopathy and, you know, we, we found out that this was genetic. I could blame my dad and I could blame my parents and I can do this and I can do that. And I could hate myself and everything, you know, for what I've been through and what I'm going through. But what is that going to help? Like, that's not going to change what's happening to me right now. Um, it's important to feel those thoughts, but kind of feel them and, and kind of let them go. And, and that's how I got through it. Um, I, I didn't let things get, in general, I don't let things, you know, get to me too much. And I think having that, that mindset really helped me work through transplant. I remember, you know, a lot of people are like, weren't you always thinking like, why did this happen to me? Why? And I'm like, no, because if you constantly think like that, you're always going to have this like negative attitude. People tell me they're like, you're so positive. And I say like, I'm not exactly positive. I like to be realistic, but I do have a, 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 an overall good attitude on things. Um, I think, I hope. And, and I think that that helped me through. Yeah. Um, so Aline, is there anything that you do to, um, sort of activate and, and practice the gratitude muscle? I mean, you know, I obviously I've seen, I followed you on social media ever since I've come to know of you and your journey. And I've uh, seen nothing but just incredibly positive, um, you know, wide from you, even uh, in the midst of you going through another operation recently for, right. um, for your, for your, um, was it, was it the femur or uh, with, with avascular necrosis because you've been right. Yeah. So with transplant, obviously there come all these issues and, um, it really puts into perspective, like how crazy your life could be. So transplant, you can, you know, you're prone to a lot of infections and you're prone to cancers and you're prone to you're on prednisone or you, you know, I was on prednisone the first few months of transplant. And so, I was told, you know, there's like the small chance where you might develop avascular necrosis way later in your life. And of course, like two years into transplant, as I start my fellowship, I find out that I have extremely like terrible avascular necrosis of both my hips. And I was like athletic. I was running and and doing everything that I could to be as fit as possible right after transplant. So it was such a shocker to me that this happened to me. Um, but again, I took it the same exact way. And, and the way that I see it is ultimately the, you know, 
the worst thing is the alternative is the worst, right? Like everything that I'm doing right now is basically bonus time. Um, the alternative is that I could have been dead. So none of this is, again, it, it, it's not exactly like great that I'm going through this, but at the same time, it's better than being dead. And I think that really helps me um, stay grounded. And, and I think, um, and I think having that mindset really helps me get through everyday life. Yeah, that's uh, an incredibly powerful mindset. You know, the other person uh, who I know had that mindset and did incredibly great things was Stephen Hawking. Oh, interesting. Because, yeah, you know, Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking was told that he would only live a few months after he was diagnosed with dystrophy. And, um, you know, he said, uh, well, you know, I'm going to make um, every day, every living day, uh, the most, um, um, you know, productive day, you know, of my life and and do meaningful things, you know, things that held a lot of meaning for him. Right. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, um, and you know, we all know uh, who Stephen Hawking is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, that, that's a, it's a very powerful mindset. You know, it's, it's, the, it's a mindset that I have, I have imbibed over the, over the past three years, I would say, uh, you know, after I read Stephen Hawking's story. Um, so Aline, um, for a heart transplant recipient, um, w- what is some of the, knowledge that you want to share in terms of living a heart healthy life and a heart healthy lifestyle i mean are there the the one uh, one other post from your instagram which resonated very well with me and um i i think was 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 incredibly insightful of you to to kind of post that was uh how for transplant recipients in general uh, you know i'm i'm talking i'm i'm pulling other transplant recipients into this conversation as well. Like how your lifestyle in general involves mask wearing, you know, which, which unfortunately became such a political statement in the midst of uh, the pandemic here in the United States. Um, so, you know, just shed some light into that. Cause I think that's a, that's again, a very insightful post and a post that puts things into perspective for a lot of people, but also delve into how you take care of, care of yourself is I think that's going to help um, other patients as well who, who, who may be yeah so um, right after my transplant like I I didn't want my transplant to necessarily like stop me from doing everything that I was gonna do with my life but I knew that I had to there was gonna be some restrictions obviously um, and people ask me like the main thing people are always worried about is like the food and I'm like well the food is like the last thing that I'm worried about but you know there's little things that I have to be careful of so for example like things that put you at risk for bacterial infections like listeria or like raw foods, like deli meats, sushi, things like that. Um, and in general, I never really ate like things and I, I was never really like, I didn't eat high salt diets and stuff. So that was easy for me to, to fix and, and, or I never really even did that. So that was fine. Um, and then the second thing you have to be careful of is again, um, I try to remind immunosuppressant transplant recipients that, Remember, like you take anti-rejection medications because your body does not want to make that many antibodies against the transplanted organ. And so the best way to to not get any infections is by and that, that means that it's not going to make any antibodies or any defense mechanisms against anything because we take such high amounts of immunosuppressants. So the best way to prevent any infections is by uh, basically prevention is the number one method. Um, 
so so we're told from day one, you know, wear a mask, especially, you know, this was pre-COVID, but especially in, in very crowded places. So like public transportation, airplanes, um, if you're going to go to the grocery store, anytime I was at work, in fact, like before COVID, I was always wearing an N95. I still remember the one time, like I was in the ER right after my transplant, you know, when I went back to work, I was doing a, a hip reduction, a dislocation reduction with orthopedics. And they were like, why are you wearing an N95? Like this guy doesn't have tuberculosis. <laughs> and I had to, I was like, oh, I know, like I'm, I'm just a heart transplant recipient. It's fine. And everybody was like, whoa, that's crazy. So, um, so this was like totally normal for me pre-COVID. Uh, so you have to be very careful of of that and constantly wearing uh, just a regular mask in, in, in crowded areas, especially. And then again, in the hospital, I take extra precautions um, where, you know, hand sanitizer everywhere, uh, just in general, being more careful of the crowded places that you're at, keeping away from people that might be sick um, as much as you could Um and then, you know, it's very general things like that, that, that everything is aimed at prevention of getting sick because your body doesn't have the same mechanisms it used to to defend itself. Now, ultimately, you do still have an immune system. So I remind people that. It's, but it's just like it's, it's a lot lower than it used to be. So that's the way I explain it. Um, this lifestyle, I, I tell people, it's not a bad lifestyle. It's just a new lifestyle. Keep in mind, I went back to doing everything that I wanted to do after my heart transplant. I still became a doctor. Of course, I have my restrictions, but I still do. I, I you know, I, I finished my ER residency. I'm an ICU doctor right now. Um, I traveled. I went back and I saw my family in Los Angeles. I, I, I did everything that I wanted to after my transplant. I just used my restrictions and my quote new lifestyle, and that's how I saw it. And so, so it didn't really. I tried not to let it psychologically bother me that much. And I think that ultimately helps me kind of deal with the transplant process. Um, yes. You know, which brings me to, um, to people around you, you know, people in your universe at the time when uh, you were delivered the news of receiving a heart transplant and everything happening so acutely, how was, how did they, um, well, first off, you know, first off, first question is how did they succumb to it? If you know, I don't even know if that's the right verbiage for the question. Uh, I'm sort of extrapolating the emotion onto me as a father. Uh, but then the, the 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 second question is um, how have they uh, done since? Uh, you know, when they see you now, and and how well you seem to have have taken this, and and you're, you're doing um, you know what you're doing now. Yeah, everybody was so upset. Like, it, it almost felt, <laughs> it's really interesting. Like, looking back, um, you know, everybody around me was almost like mourning all the time. And I had to be the one, you know, not only am I the only physician in my family, but I was always the one who was constantly telling other people that I'm going to be okay. <laughs> so it's usually supposed to be the other way around. But I was like trying to like tell my parents, like, it's okay, it's just a heart transplant, which, in all honesty, I think maybe constantly saying that maybe might have helped me. Um, but in, in general, the the feel in my room, in my ICU bed, while you know, with my swan and my chest tubes was constantly kind of somber, which I didn't necessarily like. 
And so, and I, you know, I tend to have like a very dark sense of humor, but I, I was trying to humor people and make sure that they understood that, um, I, I think that this was definitely harder on the people around me than it was for me. But, and I say that about everybody who's, who's ill in the ICU in general. Like I see that all the time things, this is heart, more heartbreaking for, for patients, families than it is for patients at times because patients are able to go through it, uh, in a different way than families are. But um, I remember like for, for my parents, it was especially hard for my dad. It was especially hard because he, you know, he didn't even realize how, you know, this was familial and um, and he just felt like this was a huge like burden. And he was just so upset that he had like he almost felt like it was his fault. And I was constantly like telling him, like, it's fine. You know, it's just a heart transplant. They do these all the time, dad. Like and, you know, um and so, so I told them, um, and I, and I, I overall had like a very good mindset about it all. So we went through it as a family and with my friends and then when everybody saw how I did with it, they became much happier. And even now, you know, my dad actually came with me to my cardiology appointment the other day. My, I had to get a cardiologist to, you know, be, do the pre-op appointment for my hip replacement a couple weeks ago. And, um, my cardiologist here uh, was thanking my dad. He said, you know, she has done such so many things for like the cardiology and heart failure community. And she's amazing. And my dad was like, yeah, you know, I knew all along she'd be, she'd be like this. And I was like, no, you did You were so sad that I was going to get a heart transplant. <laughs> so, you know, he's very proud of all the things that I've done. And, um, and, you know, he really saw how, how, um, I don't know. I think he, he saw how I turned it around and it made him feel much better about everything. Yeah, no, as he should be like, he should be proud. I mean, you know, what you've done again, for what you've done for cardiovascular disease community and the advanced heart failure community and, and the heart transplant community is commendable. And I, I sort of, uh, you know, complimented you earlier in the show for being the voice. Um, I think your voice is unique because, you know, you're a physician and you sort of represent the physician community and, and also represent the patient community. So, you know, you're, you have the voice, um, you have that rare voice. And I think you've, you've, you've used it to a beautiful purpose of, um, you know, I think, uh, fostering an increase in, in organ donation, which is a huge bottleneck, um, you know, as, as, you know, you know, um, in this country. And, um, you know, a lot of people are just waiting for, you know, organs and, and, you know, as, as sad and as poignant as it may be, I mean, who better than you, better than you yourself, uh, you know, who's, I mean, the, the, the heart that you received was, was, you know, from the, from the donor who, whom you've gotten to know well, right. Their family. Do you want to talk about, talk about the donor, honor, honor her? My donor was, um, her name was Lucy and she was 23 years old at the time of her she, she, sudden death. Um, her family and I have gotten to know each other over the last two years. We actually, the first letter we sent out was just a few months after my heart transplant. And um, I found out that she was actually going into the healthcare field and had always wanted to, you know, save lives through her career. And I think, in fact, she did so much more than that by just becoming an organ donor. Um, so, and, and it's so interesting because not only did her family go on to, her, her family is so big on organ donation now, and they were doing this 
on, you know, on the side. And so was I. And now that like, we know each other really well, we're like, wow, for the last two years, like, they've been such big advocates for organ donation. And I've been doing the same thing. And so now we collaborate and we do all these like projects, which is amazing. Um, I still haven't met them in person because of COVID, but we definitely will soon. And I can't wait for that. So her family is like a big part of my life now, which is so beautiful. And um, I think, you know, we do, we, I think, I, I think that just together, we're able to, to tell the story of organ donation and how through such a um, tragedy, something really beautiful and um, selfless could come out of it. So I always try to emphasize the importance of organ donation and talking to family members about, you know, whether or not you want to be an organ donor and how important that is. Uh, you know, so in case the time ever comes, it's, you know, you can, you can go on to save lives. Yeah. Aline, I, I want to be mindful of your upcoming appointment, but. Oh yeah. My physical yeah. therapy. Yes. Uh, but you know, I want to, I want to end the show and, you know, by the way, thanks again for doing this for us. And so two questions, you know, first question is what is uh, Aline's life going to look like in the ensuing near future that you can tell? And what are some of the projects that you have embarked upon? Some of the key ones that you're interested in in pursuing and, you know, seeing them to fruition. And then any closing remarks for uh, for the Parallax uh, audience uh, or, or listenership? Um, I think, well, I want to definitely finish fellowship. Uh, I can't wait to go back in like two weeks after I'm done with physical therapy. So once I finish fellowship, it, it'll be in about a year and a half. Um I want to go into academics, so we'll see where my life goes with that. That'll be one part of my life. The other part of my life is going to still be to advocate for organ donation. Um, and, you know, I, I do a lot of things with both organ donation and um, I do a lot of things with like women with heart failure and women with heart disease. And I think that's an important topic that we don't talk about enough, especially young women with with these issues. So if I can put my voice out there and still use my voice the way that I do now um, and continue to use it, I would love to do the same. Um, as far as, you know, any other projects that I'm doing, uh, there is a new project that I'm thinking of, which is basically making, um, and it's very new and it hasn't even, you know, it's not, it's not even up yet, but basically I was going to use my site to make patient care packages, um, and sell them. And part of the profits were going to go to different organ donation, um, or, you know, different, uh, organizations that I, that I help out with, for example, like live on New York. And, and so that's something that I'm working on right now. And maybe in two to three months, it'll be, you know, I'll talk about it more on my blog. So we'll see where those few projects go. But I think the main thing that I always tell everybody, not only with like any podcast that I do, any lecture that I do, that doesn't even have to do with organ donation or my story is always to remind people to make sure or to at least consider to please signing sign up to become an organ donor. And, um, you know, if you're in the U.S., you just do that by going to registerme.org. And you have to remember that just with one organ donor, you can save up to eight lives and uh, improve the lives of up to 100 other people because it's not just the major organs that we take, but it's also, for example, um, cornea, you know, tissue and tendons, things like that, that are procured as well. So people always forget that too. So I like to just remind people to please register to become an organ donor. It's like my favorite thing to remind people. Yeah. And I want to remind you from, from the discussion we had on Clubhouse, you know, I, I, I do think you should write a book. Um, yes, that's, in the, that's, that's something that has been talked about a few times, but 
I think there's been so much in my story that like every month there's something new that happens and I don't even know like when to start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I yeah, no, that, that look, I, I think, if, I think if, I think a person like you, I, I don't know if you do already, but a person like you would be really good at journaling. Um, so right. if you could journal, you know, your thoughts and, and your experiences, maybe, you know, one day, once everything is settled and there are not as many waves hitting you on a constant basis, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can sort of sit back and collate them to, to form a book and, uh, you know, that would be great. Yeah, if you need yeah. any, any help with that, just uh, hit me up and I'll be happy to help you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Aline, thanks again for, for being on the show and, you know, God bless you and keep up the spirit and stay positive and, and good Thank luck you. to you and best wishes to you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.